welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover Two Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover Two podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. And I'm joined today by John Stuckey, who is the president of the Archway Institute, a nonprofit whose vision is to bring the treatment of mental health and addictive orders into the realm of mainstream medicine, similar to the treatment of other chronic lifestyle diseases such as obesity and diabetes. So, John, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay. So, you've struggled through throughout much of your life, your young life. You're 32 years old now. You've struggled beginning in middle school with starting with alcohol and weed and progressing from there on up into a serious uh, addiction to opioids, specifically heroin. Tell us your story. So, I mean, I think uh, I I think I contribute a lot to it. Um, You know, at the the time when I was seeking out, you know, drugs and alcohol at an early age, um, I just thought it was because. Uh, it was for social and like trying to be cool and hanging out with the guys and, you know, going out and partying and things of that sort. But, you know, now that when I think about it, it's more, uh, it was deeper than that. I mean, I think it was more, um, some mental health issues going on, like maybe some depression, sleeping issues, things of that sort. And like, what I didn't realize was that like my body was probably naturally trying to seek out some sort of like coping mechanism. Um, because at, at that young age, I probably wasn't really understanding of what uh, depression and having sleeping issues really, you know, how to really deal with them. So I think in like some sort of way, instinctively, I was seeking out some sort of like self-medication. Um, and, and it kind of, you know, when you're self-medicating, especially with substances that are addicting, it, it's very progressive and it just kind of continues to escalate. So how old were you when you started drinking and smoking weed? I'd probably say it was somewhere in between 12 and 13 um, where alcohol and marijuana was introduced. And you went to college initially to Coastal Carolina, Mm -hmm. and your use graduated from there. Yeah, so when I went to college, I mean, obviously you go to college and you get introduced to a different crowd and uh, people with a little more, it's more of a party scene, and, you know, other drugs are introduced, um, and that's kind of where... Um, start dibble dabbling in uh, a little bit of harder drugs like cocaine and and pain pills and whatnot. So today they say that uh, most of the people that are addicted to heroin, in fact, 75% of them, uh, they say studies have revealed, started with a legitimate prescription to pain pills. Mm -hmm. That wasn't the case in, in your situation. You started dabbling in pain pills, I'll call it, 
at parties. Yeah, and I mean, I, I could probably be considered part of the ripple effect because, I mean, even though maybe I didn't have the prescription to pain pills, I mean, pain pills were easily accessible from friends and other people around you just by being overprescribed. Yeah. So then when you moved to St. Louis, uh, back to where your folks had moved, you, uh, you picked up uh, heroin for yeah. the first time. Yeah. Tell us about that. Um, I mean, it was kind of, um, <clears throat> so I got a DUI. Uh, I was working at a, a country club. I was a clubhouse manager. Um, and uh, I was coming off of a golf outing and ended up getting a DUI. And I was kind of like, okay, you know, I can't drink <clears throat> anymore. So it was, it was kind of one of those things where, I mean, I hadn't used drugs in a while. And I was doing well and things of that sort. And, and basically, whenever uh, I got that DUI, I was just kind of like, okay, well, now I can't drink. Let me see if I can find something you know, because I wasn't ready to like stop partying. I just didn't want to drink. And I knew that pain pills and opiates were something that like would give me that sensation, that feeling that I was looking for without really a lot of the effects that alcohol would have provided. Wow. So this was um, just further experimentation to find what worked. Yeah. So, I mean, self-medication. Yeah. I mean, that's more or less what, what I would look at it as. That was a little bit better than five years ago. What, what finally happened to, to make you turn the corner? Um, well, so, I mean, I was pretty much on four or five year run. I mean, basically like once a uh, heroin got introduced, um, you know, it was, uh, yeah, I, I almost like, I remember, uh, I was sitting in my office one day and it was just like, I got hit like a ton of bricks and I started sweating, you know, cramping up. My stomach was turning. I was feeling like I was dying and I was like, what is going on? And I remember calling somebody and being like, what, what is happening to me? Like, I thought, you know, something, I was dying. <laughs> and uh, they were like, you're going through withdrawals. And I was like, withdrawals from what? You know, I didn't even know what it was. And and it just caught me so off guard. And then I was like, well, what do I do? <laughs> and they were like, well, you can either wait three to five days until the drugs get out of your system or, and you know, bypass the, the withdrawals, or you just continue to use. And I was kind of working in a high-paced, high-stress job and, and working seven days a week. And I was like, well, I can't do it today and next thing you know i mean fast four or five years later i mean i just you know once once it got the hooks in me i just couldn't um it was nearly impossible for me to to kick it and it's worst yeah how many times did you use a day um so my habit progressed pretty quickly so it went uh i was shooting around two to three hundred dollars of heroin a day so how did you finally call it quits um well i mean i was finally at a point like i mean i was um i was burning all my bridges um I couldn't keep a job. I kept on job, 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 losing car, losing apartments, losing. I mean, I just couldn't sustain anymore. And it finally got to a point where it's just like, I can't live like this. And, you know, to a point where, you know, suicide was appealing, <laughs> you know, uh, suicide was appealing or I need to stop, you know, and make some sort of change. Cause I was just done. I was just done. But, you know, one of the things was, is that I couldn't, um, it was like easier said than done, you know, wanted to quit, but couldn't quit. Um, and so finally, you know, I'd been through a couple of treatment centers, but like always, uh, I mean, pretty much was like always in, uh, in a situation that it was always, what does John want to do? What does John want to do? And it's the last time it was kind of, you know, once again, sitting there with the treatment team and my family and they're like, what do you want to do? And I was like, listen, <laughs> stop asking me what I want to do because like, I don't, my addiction is not giving me the ability to close all these doors, you know, like I'm going to give you two minutes of clarity in here and that is if i have an opinion on this if i throw out a suggestion that is me trying to leave doors open down the line so wow finally my family and the treatment provider was like okay well here we go um uh, they want you to do uh you know 
transitional living, and we want you to get on Vivitrol. So you had some real self-awareness. Uh, I mean, at that point, <laughs> I mean, it was. You can call it self-awareness. I just kind of realized. It, 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 I don't know if it was you know higher power. I don't know if it was just the situation or what. But it was just kind of like one of those things where <clears throat> I, 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 if, if I could just tell it was like a fork in the road, and it was kind of like one of those moments that like if I don't say something here, like I will be setting myself up for failure again. So, so but you passed over control, and that's one of the yeah. most difficult things yeah. for most that are struggling with addiction to yeah. do. They're used to controlling all others around them, yeah. family, friends, et cetera. And so you obviously were ready because you turned over the keys yeah. to the car, so to speak. So um, back then, five years ago, gosh, taking that step and using Vivitrol, Vivitrol really wasn't known out there yeah. vastly the way that it is today. Yeah. So tell us why Vivitrol versus everything else. I mean, back then it was abstinence was, was really all you heard about. And um, so... So I mean I'm a I'm a really big advocate of Vivitrol for a number of reasons, but um, so I, I've tried you know so opiates are just like a little bit like old school philosophies on a, a lot of like treatment for substance abuse like the abstinence based programs you know I just think I think opiates are just a much you know I think the abstinence is coming a lot more from like a twelve step community type of philosophy where um, you know alcohol in in a sense I would say is a little bit easier from like a obsession standpoint and just like the effects that it has on the brain as far as like mind control over the over the individual where opiates when someone becomes chemically dependent on opiates uh, they end up it ends up rewiring the function of the brain you know and it doesn't really matter whether you're an addict or not if you abuse opiates for a long enough period of time you will become addicted and you know once that once that uh, chemical dependency comes in you know that drug actually turns on you because now you need it to survive on a daily basis and um, it takes priority over all basic functions of life. Say that again, because I just don't think most people get that. Yeah. So if you do opiates long enough, you'll be an addict. Yeah. It'll do the same thing. I mean, you know, it's um, <clears throat> it, it's once you become chemically. So if you abuse and, and, and progresses, um, basically opiates will rewire the function of the brain um, to prioritize it over all basic functions of survival. So food, sex, shelter, all the things that your body and mind will uh, tell you that is a survival tactic. And that's why, um, you know, when, when somebody becomes chemically dependent, it is nearly impossible for them to stop because basically it would be like me telling you, like you haven't eaten in three months. And I put food on the table here and I say, don't eat this food. I'd be like, dude, I don't it's, care what you that say. That food is gone. I don't care what you yeah. say. Yeah. I don't care where it's at and who's in between me and that food. Like I'm getting that food because mm -hmm. why? Your mind tells your body that we will die today if we don't get that food. So, um, you know, one kind of uh, a common belief out there is that, okay, my family has the gene and therefore, you know, somebody has it in their background for addiction and therefore I'm going to become addicted. I'm going to be susceptible to this. But if I'm not in the 10 or 12% of the population that has that out there in their family history, then I'm pretty good. And I can, I can just use these things. I think, uh, I think it's, um, <clears throat> I think there's different levels of addiction and this is just, I mean, I'm not talking from like a research standpoint, I'm just talking from a standpoint of what I've observed over the numerous years of working in the field and working with a number of individuals. But, you know, there, I, and that, that's why it's not a cookie cutter answer to how we get out of this problem. Um, just because, you know, some people, it, it's, it's mental health issues. I, I remember talking to a dad one time and he's like, I just don't understand, you know, because my, when I had my wisdom teeth pulled out, I took a Percocet 
and it was prescribed by my doctor and I took it and it made me feel woozy and it made me feel sick and I didn't like it and, and I just don't understand how somebody could get addicted to this, you know? And I was telling him, I said, well, for somebody that has chemical balances in their brain and are somewhat mentally stable and, you know, you throw some other chemicals into that brain uh, of a balance, it'll throw you out of whack. Well, for somebody that has chemical imbalances going on or mental health issues, when they take that medication, it, it gives them, it numbs their feeling. So it's like, <clears throat> so say you have a broken foot or a bo broken toe. Let's just say a broken toe, you know? I mean, how, what do you do every day? You know, all you do is think about this toe. This toe, I can't function, I can't go to work, I can't do anything because, because you are feeling so uncomfortable internally that nothing else really matters, you know? And it's the same kind of thing with like mental health. You know, if you're not, if it's not treated and it's not taken care of, then it just sits there, you know, and it's your number one priority and you just feel discomfort and, and people just won't live their lives in dis discomfort. So whether or not, um, so if I'm if I'm struggling and I'm chemical imbalances and I'm feeling discomfort within myself, like I will seek out something to satisfy that and feel better about myself just because I can't live. I'm not going to live miserable, you know, and whether the consequences or side effects or symptoms of alcohol and drugs are jails, institutions and death. That's a risk I'm willing to take because I would rather at least have that instant gratification than live my life in this misery. So you defied the odds. Five years ago, you set it aside, you went, went for help, and here you are, clean five years. That's fantastic, that's a huge accomplishment. Yeah, Tell us a little bit about that. Tell us about what that has meant to you and the struggles that you had along the way to, meet, to reach this milestone. And, and, and I, I mean, <clears throat> you know, it's, um, I've had a lot of support, I've had a lot of uh, benefits and, and a lot of good people around me, and I think, um, you know, in the treatment uh, aspects that were available to me, so, I mean, still to this day. Um, so I got on Vivitrol, like, so I had tried abstinence, I had tried Suboxone, and like, um, neither of those two things, like my, my obsession was still there. I was still craving, I still had that desire. Like, I could just tell, like, you know what I mean? Like it was a short-term lived um, type of recovery. I don't think I really put together more than a couple of days of sobriety in those past experiences. And, and one of the things when I got on Vivitrol, it was like, oh wow, like, I mean, it's been five years, and I haven't even thought about heroin. And heroin had the death hooks in me, and I couldn't even I couldn't even see past an hour, you know. And now it was like this, like it gave me this clarity. Uh, it opened up my mind and blocked those receptors, so like it really uh, gave me some insight on yeah. So let's just take a second for our listeners to describe Vivitrol and what that is. Yeah, so Vivitrol is a non-addictive anti-craving medication. It's a uh, injection that you get once a month. So it basically, it's a 30-day injection. It's an extended time release. Um, so basically what it does, it only has one purpose, and that is to block the opiate receptors. So unlike other substances, opiates are probably the easiest drug to treat. You know, because when it comes to your addiction, it is all coming off of your opiate receptors. So when you talk about cocaine, alcohol, marijuana, things of that sort, it affects so many different aspects of the mind and body that it actually is very difficult to actually isolate where the uh, cravings are coming from just because it has so much of an impact on different aspects of the brain and body, where opiates literally only does one thing and that attaches to the opiate receptors and that gives you a euphoric feeling and and so forth so you know that's where the obsession comes in that's where the cravings come in that's where all that stuff goes and so basically when vivitrol basically what it does is it blocks those ovary receptors so you've been on it for five years the vivitrol yep and it lasts for 28 days yep have you ever missed a shot yeah i've had um, for a few days yeah so uh i mean there's been numerous times of 
insurance changing or lapses or whatever being out of town so i mean i've gone um you know throughout that period uh of maybe a month or two sometimes in between shots and and i mean i'm fine and nothing like no real cravings i mean i think i mean the medication to be honest with you like when i talk to the alchemies people the people that make vivitrol and when i talk to treatment providers really the recommendation is six to 12 months you know and i was kind of like well you say this is a lifelong disease and you say this is trying to kill me on a daily basis and this is a medication that's protecting me from overdose relapses and things of that sort so why would i not stay on it longer if it has really no side effects and they really didn't have a good answer um they kind of just like looked at me wink wink nod nod like we don't have fda approval to or research that goes past this amount of time so mm, we sure. can't we can't recommend that we can only recommend the six 12 months but you know like for me <clears throat> um it was uh well, i was like well so so like the same mentality for vivitrol i, I kind of as with you know people coming out of prison you know you lock them up for so long their tolerance is so low and then when they get out of prison they overdose or they relapse and they overdose and die and that's all like, they can think of as soon as they get out is yeah. using and so like the same mentality for me was like kind of thinking about like with like vivitrol because it was like okay well so you're going to tell me you're going to put me on this medication it's going to protect me for six to twelve months block my cravings my desire lower my tolerance allow me to work on these things but if I get off of that in six to 12 months, my tolerance is really low. I'm very susceptible to overdose and death. And that's just not a risk. And like I, at that point, like at six to 12 months, I had already built up a, a quality of life that I was willing to maintain and sustain. And, you know, you can call it a crutch, you can call it whatever the hell you want. But, you know, at the end of the day, this is my life and I need to protect myself. And I value my life today. I value what I've built. And I value the people around me. And, and I'm not willing to risk that um, when I know how serious you know, and I, and, I, and I say this a lot, but I don't fear my disease, I respect my disease, you know? And I think there's a big difference in those two mentalities where a lot of people make fear-based decisions about their disease and, and, and they're constantly running from it. I don't run from it, you know, I stand up to it and I take the necessary steps to protect myself. So in your recovery, you really found your life's purpose. Mm -hmm. Tell us about Archway. Uh, so, I mean, like you said, Vivitrol wasn't widely known um, and I was kind of like, as soon as I got, on it it kind of was like very apparent to me that like this was something that was a huge benefit to my recovery and you know talking to a number of people it was kind of uh why aren't more people having i mean i've been in our treatment center for five years i never even heard of the medication you know and and basically when i asked why not they said that basically insurance wasn't authorizing um uh, coverage for it and it was a fifteen hundred dollar a month shot where people yeah. just couldn't afford it insurance wasn't authorizing it and basically if, if treatment centers couldn't provide it to everybody they weren't going to provide it to anybody um so can i ask you something yeah did you pay out of pocket uh so yeah and i still do today um okay. and Just i mean insurance 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 has changed a lot so i mean i, I don't think i was authorized for the first a uh, couple months um but insurance has actually tr changed a lot over the last five years so when I was working at a treatment center, I'd probably say one out of 10 people were getting authorized coverage for their medication. Uh, today, I'd probably say it's nine out of 10 people. Hmm. Yeah. Let's get back into the Archway Institute yeah. and what you've founded uh, between you and your family. Uh, your father and your mother are actively involved in, uh, in your institute and in this nonprofit and what you've built. Yeah, so it was kind of, um, 
So I started, a buddy of mine was uh, selling coffee and I was, he kept on like intriguing me about trying to get involved in this thing. And I was like, no, no, no. And then it kind of just dawned on me. I was like, well, I could sell this coffee. I can donate that money to local treatment centers and maybe that could alleviate some of the barriers from people. Um, so like one of the things was, is uh, a buddy of mine needed his girlfriend into a treatment center, you know, and, and I was in the transitional house at the time. I knew some people and, and so he asked me if I could help him get into you know, a center or help her get in a center. So I called a bunch of these places and um, there were state funded facilities. She was a non-insured opiate addict. And pretty much I called all the local treatment centers that were supposed to be working with, you know, state funded or federally funded programs that were supposed to be working with uh, non-insured clients. And I basically got three responses and it was, um, <clears throat> there was um, a, a six to 12 month waiting list uh, to get them into a, a detox center. Um, there was, um, the recommendation, cause I was basically like, well, what are they supposed to do in the next six to 12 months while they wait to get into this detox center? And they said, they basically have two options and that's one to attempt suicide. And then a hospital is required to take them on to a 72 hour to a 96 hour hold. And then basically they'll be discharged back into whatever environment they're in. I was like, well, that's not going to help. And I said, like, what's the second option? They said, if they committed crime bad enough, they will be incarcerated and then the state will then require them to be into a treatment center. So basically they had three options which were unacceptable as far as I was concerned and that was wait six to 12 months. And just continue using. Just continue using. six to 12 months, yeah. yeah. Which, uh, Russian you know, roulette. Yeah, and then it was, you know, attempt suicide uh, and be committed for a quick hold in a, in a psych ward or uh, commit, a, they were actually recommend, recommending that they commit a crime bad enough that they would actually get incarcerated to be so this is professionals. Yeah, this is the recommendation. This is the best we got, you know. That's, and that's the recommendations that they're giving you, yep. which are street smart recommendations, Yep. which are super sad. Yeah, I mean, it's, so, a, it's, a, it's an underworld we live in when it comes to um, recovery. Um, I mean, substance abuse in particular, I mean, like that, and that just goes to stigma, you know. You know, this is, this is how people with mental health and substance abuse disorders have to work through the system to uh, get help. So that's what inspired you Correct. to remove hurdles and make that kind of the centerpiece mission of the Archway Institute. Yeah. So one of the things, when, and when I had those conversations, one of the things that you know I was like, well, what what financial situation would it cost to get in? And they were like, I was like, what what if I, because I had like a couple hundred bucks, and I was like, what if I gave you guys a couple hundred bucks? And I'm like, oh, well, we could get her in tomorrow. I was like, wow. So like three hundred to five hundred bucks was the difference between this person getting admitted into this thing or having those three other options. So, so then I started selling this coffee, um, and uh, I was making a bunch of presentations at different treatment centers, talking to staff, uh, networking with local businesses, um, trying to get support and donations from them. My family was actually a real big supporter of me while I was going through that, and then I was making a presentation at this treatment center. Uh, Orca and uh, ran into the Menzi family, who was one of the other co-founders, and they told me, they were like, hey, you want to do this? Let's do this. And so my family and the Menzies got together and we sat down and kind of brainstormed about uh, how Archway was going to be put together, you know, what we were going to do and what kind of goals we were going to try to be accomplishing. So one of the biggest hurdles that you help people overcome is, is that of financing, in essence, and funding to get them into treatment. Yeah. Over and over again, peer support comes in as probably one of the number one or number two reasons that people make it in long term. And I think it's like when you were talking about the blinders, I mean, addicts have blinders too, so there's a lot of uh, misplaced trust. They always feel like uh, professionals don't understand, and 
one of the biggest things peer supports do is uh, break that communication gap between the professionals in the field and the clients because the professionals' messages are usually typically right. You know, they have the right message. It's just the addicts misconstruing that message into, you know, uh, they don't trust them. They don't, they don't believe they understand. Even the family, you know, family's message along with professional's message. So the peer supports really their job is to really help relate to the, to the client and kind of be like, hey, listen, what they're saying is right. You know, and this is how, and basically they'll rephrase a lot of the communication uh, that the professionals and families are trying to relay to the individual and just put it in terms that they might be more willing to accept the, the message that's being portrayed to them. Terrific. Well, again, I want to congratulate you, John, for your great work, the unbelievable accomplishment Thanks. also of the past five years and uh, everything that you're doing with uh, Archway, you and your team, the Archway Institute. So what final thoughts would you care to share with our listeners about the opioid epidemic and how others can work with you and your organization to make a difference? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> can you say that again? Certainly. What final thoughts would you like to share with our listeners about the opioid epidemic and how others can work with you and the Archway Institute to make a difference? Yeah. So, I mean, the main thing is, and we always do this, is we want to inspire hope out there to families and struggling addicts that that there is hope out there for you. Um, You know, stigma is real and we need everybody out there, community. I mean, this problem is much bigger than just the people struggling. You know, this has such a ripple effect throughout our communities, spread of diseases, tax dollars, federal dollars, theft, imprisonment, you know, future uh, employment, um, how many kids are out there that aren't going to be raised by their parents that they should be. Um, and, and it just has such a rippling effect that if you sit there and you're listening to this and you don't think that you have, um, this isn't affecting you, you're wrong. And, and and everybody should be outcried by, you know, just some of the things I said earlier on the three options that are available to non-insured addicts, you know, and <clears throat> why this problem hasn't got better is because of access to beds and funding uh, to support individuals and you know the stigma associated with addiction that this is a choice and not a disease is is one of the biggest things that is fueling this problem to continue to go down this path that we're going down and and unfortunately this problem is going to get much worse before it gets better just because of the stigma that is in everyone's thought process right now around how to treat it this is the only disease that when you go in and you need help and 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 basically your best recommendation is to pray more you know, if you were dying of cancer or diabetes and you walked into the doctor's office and were told you need to go pray more, you know, you would you would look at him and say, Doc, that's the best you got for me. So we need to really look at this from a disease aspect instead of a choice aspect to really start making a difference on the impact of, you know, the numbers that are coming because this this is killing more people than guns, car accidents, you know, and, and, and it's a it's an epidemic and it's not gonna get better with the way people think and look at and view this as right now. Well, thank you again, John. We've been joined today by John Stuckey, who is the founder and president of the Archway Institute. Archway Institute is making a difference in the lives of many of those that are struggling throughout our nation with substance use disorder. My name is Greg McNeil, the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. 
With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.